Okay, good morning. So, ah, hmm. apparently our strike is not going to be resolved, unfortunately. Not today, anyway. Um, so probably a lot of you heard a lot of the news going on that they're going back to the bargaining table on Monday. And I think they're also going back to the, or was, we're supposed to be going back to the bargaining table today. But as far as I know, uh, nothing has really been resolved. So unfortunately, it looks like things are going to continue to be in a strike state for another two more weeks. However, that said, with respect to this course, after today, we only have three lectures left. So I will be continuing. We'll be finishing the course. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the next assignment today, which is going to be certainly a pared down assignment, but it'll be such that it's true and false and multiple choice and can actually be marked on Moodle so you can get your answers, your marks right away. Then you'll get your SA2 assignment 2 marks, so you'll have your mark coming into the final exam, which uh, unless I hear otherwise, and I would inform you of that immediately, the final exam will proceed on April 17 as previously scheduled. Um, if, again, it is your right not to cross picket lines, so you are not obligated to attend that exam. In that case, other sort of, I'm not exactly sure what will happen. I don't think Senate even knows what's going to happen yet. But there'll be some sort of remediation period where you'll have an opportunity to do the exam at a later date. But if you want to you know, get your summer started, get everything done, um, definitely come write the exam on April 17. And at least for this course, things will continue as usual. So I'll talk about that more in a, in a second. But now that we're into our, basically our fourth last class, I'm not going to do a ton of new material. I think you have your hands full with a lot of material already in this course. So we're going to talk, do a, a large review in this class. We talked a couple of classes ago about minerals, about metals, about gemstones. So we'll do a review of that. And then we'll also review what we talked about last time, which was looking at light in the big picture of things, looking at light at macroscopic scales, that is large scales as a wave, and the two ways in which it can behave which are essentially bouncing off of matter or going into matter. And that's where we get into our new material for today. We'll have part two of how light actually permeates or enters matter and see a few of the phenomena that are associated with this, some of which are, include rainbows, uh, why the sky is blue typically, and why sunsets are red, um, and just atmospheric scattering. In the next three classes, um, one class will be doing iridescence and thin films, so how light interferes. It's a form of interference, how light interferes with itself, basically. Um, and then the, last, the second last class will be astronomy, a supplement on color and astronomy. And then our final class will be an exam review. Okay. So a couple announcements. Um, lecture this Friday, you may have seen the email that I circulated on Moodle. Lecture this Friday is canceled. 
Uh, unfortunately, I have a funeral that I have to be at. Um, so no lecture Friday, but we're good. We've, we've got our material down, so we'll be finishing everything on time. Assignment three, a number of you have been asking, when will that be posted? And originally, my intention with assignment three was to give you something a little more open-ended, a little bit more creative. But given that I do not have your full complement of TAs back, something like that would take a very long time to mark. Um, and I want to get you your marks so that you can have the option of finishing the term in a regular way. So what we're going to do for assignment three, it's going to be a short assignment consisting of a Moodle quiz, which will have true or false questions, some multiple choice as well. So that can act as well as a bit of a, an exam review for you. And then there may be some very short, short answer questions. So that will be assigned to you by Wednesday, March 27, earlier if possible, and it will be due April 5th, which is the last day to turn in term work, and I believe April 6th is the end of classes, so we don't actually have a class on April 6th. April uh, 4 is going to be our last day of class. So exam, it will happen on the 17th as per the exam schedule. If that changes, if there are any sort of rulings, I will let you know as soon as I know about that. But for now, consider April 17 your exam date. So there is a document as well, and I brought it up here. And I know that I, I don't get the student emails that York, I think, sends out to undergrads. So I haven't seen a lot of the communication. Um, but people were saying that a new document, a new Senate document was circulated. Um, which seemed really confusing. Uh, I'll show you that document in a second. Um, I had seen it posted on Reddit and other places, and people were asking, is this for real? Um, to tell you the truth, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you it's definitely real without confirmation of that. I will be looking into that today. But there has been no official communication to um, us as faculty, I don't think, at the moment. Let's take a look at um, this document that I'm talking about. Where we go? Oh no, I don't want to Here it is. So this March 19 document looks official enough. Um, this talks about what happens to courses that are suspended versus courses that have continued, like ours. So a couple important things to note in the document which apply whether it's an official issue or not, you do have immunity from penalty. So you do not have to worry about that, and you will have reasonable access to both the material and extension of deadlines. Okay. So this particular uh, set of policies, I'll give you confirmation on this later, but for now, in this course, we'll proceed as usual. The marking scheme will be the same as the one outlined in the course outline. Okay. So more about that later. Anybody have any questions about this? Okay. Okay. Well, if you do, just 
interrupt, you can stop me, and because um, it's frustrating not to know what's going on. It's frustrating for you as students, and it's also frustrating for the professors. All right. So I'll close this, and we'll go back. So hopefully you'll all be logged in and we'll start our review process by a question. So this is the name of the model we use to describe how electrons bond in metals. What is the name of the model? of electron bonding in metals. Is it electron charge transmutation model, electron exchange continuum, electron sharing model, electron C model, or none of the above? I know it was two lectures ago, so you may not, have, may not have a clear recollection of the material, but that's okay. We're going to review that in a second. Okay. So a couple more seconds. Right. So that's interesting. Okay. So most people chose electron charge transmutation model. It does sound pretty catchy, but actually um, the name of the model is D, the electron C model. Because what you have to think of is metals share electrons communally. Instead of having them structured in little shells or orbitals, the electrons are basically distributed around the metal and move freely like a flowing current. Look at that. Here's the picture of our electron C model. And what you have is essentially the same kind of atoms that we've discussed and been discussing throughout the whole course. You have your nucleus, which are the blue positive spheres with protons and neutrons in them with electrons on the outside. And when they get into this metal configuration, there's a special kind of crystalline configuration that metals lock into. So the protons and the neutrons in the nucleus remain essentially stationary, and the electrons swarm around them. So you have a community of electrons that don't belong to one particular atom of the metal, but are shared amongst all of them. And in this way, this gives rise to a lot of really important properties of metals, like conductivity. Thinking of conductivity, think of thermal conductivity. If you have a metal pot on a stove and you don't have a nice plastic handle and you grab the metal pot handle, it often is quite hot and might burn you. This is due to a lot of the moving around, the flowing of electrons in metals, which happens more readily than in any other material. 
So we talked about metals last time, we talked about minerals, and we talked about gemstones. We'll review how those are all related in a second, but in the meantime, let's see which of the following is not a cause of color in minerals and in gems. So which is not a cause of color? Is it metallic impurities, charge transfer, band gap, electrophoresis, or color centers? seconds with this one and I will close this off here. so in terms of color in minerals and gems we talked about the type the mechanisms that cause color and the one which is not a cause of color in minerals and gems is correct that is indeed D electrophoresis Electrophoresis is, has to do with separating of charging. It's like when you have uh, electrodes attached to your skin for an EKG or something. You use gel, separates out the charges. That's electrophoresis. We haven't talked about it in this course, and it's not really relevant. So that's correct. So if that's not the cause of color. What are the causes of color? Here are the five main causes of colors in minerals and gemstones. And we have band gap processes, metallic impurities, physical optics, how something is actually geometrically structured, charge transfers, so charges, sort of electrons hopping around between different atoms, and color centers, which is where you have that metal structure I showed you before, but you have a slight hole in it. An electron is trapped in that hole, and that electron is responsible, the emission sort of spectrum of that electron is responsible for the color that we see. Band gap, um, I'm going to ask about that in a moment, so let's wait and move on to the next one until I talk about this. Okay. So which of the previous five effects is responsible for causing luster or shininess in metals. Okay, so is that the, which one? Is it charge transfer, band gap, color centers, metallic impurities, or physical optics that cause the sheen and shininess of metals? So luster is a, is a very interesting characteristic in metals. 
and I will give it a couple more seconds. Okay, so I'm going to stop this now. And the answer for this one is band gap. So band gap, what is that? It sounds kind of vague. Well, recall that previously we talked about atoms having different energy levels. In an atom, you have a certain number of orbital shells that corresponds to the distance of the electrons around which they're orbiting the nucleus. So instead of thinking about those orbital shells, when we're talking about metals, instead of just having shells with numbers, n equals 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, we have a series of common sort of energy bands that electrons are likely to fall into. So it's like the orbitals, but instead of being an orbit, it's an energy band, which is a common level at which electrons will exist. And what happens is these bands are separated by specific energy gaps, which are quite large. An electron gaining energy and jumping up to another band in the same way as they jump up to different orbitals causes this shininess. And when basically not the jumping up, but the falling back down of electrons at high energy from higher bands to lower ones causes the electron to emit a photon. And that photon gives us this shininess. The metals actually emit their own light a little bit. So here is our luster in metals. You can see they're extremely shiny. And this has to do with the band gap effects. So when you have, a, have different band transitions, when an electron falls or jumps the gap between different bands, the light's re-emitted. And the color of that light depends on the wavelengths that have first been absorbed to allow the electron to jump bands. And recall that energy is always conserved. So uh, an electron absorbs a certain amount of energy. It jumps up. When it tires itself out, essentially, it jumps back down. And the energy that it emits is proportional to the energy that it absorbs. So you have specific levels. And what those levels are, uh, the absorbance and the re-emitted has to do with the color. So for gold and copper, wavelengths that are absorbed and re-emitted are ready orange. And that's why gold and copper look kind of rose, rose gold, pink, orange, ready. So moving on with minerals then. We talked about a classification of two types of minerals. So we said allochromatic minerals are blank colored, whereas idiochromatic minerals are blank colored. So are allochromatic self-colored versus idiochromatic or other colored? Other colored versus self-colored, opaque, transparent, transparent, opaque, or one is clear-colored and one is multicolored.
if you were to get this kind of a question on a test, um, take a look at the prefixes, the allo and the idio, and try and think of some English words that are similar to these and what kinds of meanings they have. For example, the word idiosyncrasies. What's that referring to? Is it referring to somebody's self or somebody's not self? Okay. Okay. So stop this now. And so the answer then is is B. Allochromatic materials. Are, minerals are other colored, and we'll talk about what it, that, that exactly means in a moment, whereas idiochromatic materials are self-colored. So when you talk about a person's idiosyncrasies, you mean the strange little characteristics that they have that are unique to that person, unique to themselves. So self goes with the prefix idio. Okay. What do I mean by self and other colored? in the first place. Well, here's what, oops, don't end. Okay. So here's what I'm talking about. The allochromatic minerals are minerals that get their color from impurities, essentially, from these trace amounts, very small trace amounts of metal impurities that have made their way into this mineral. So gems like tourmaline and citron are allochromatic. They're colored solely based on very small trace amounts of impurities. Whereas idiochromatic or self-colored gems and minerals, these are the ones that are composed of sort of many different mixtures. So it's each of the components, each of the metals that make them up that give it its color. So example, malachite and turquoise uh, are composed by a number of different mix or mixing elements, and that means it's, they're idiochromatic. Okay. So now we're into, so that was our minerals and gems. And just to remember, remind you a couple things. Uh, you may wonder, why am I saying minerals and gems, minerals and gems? Well, minerals are, a mineral is something that is found in nature, a large sort of jagged rock-sized type of shape of some sort of a stone, let's say amethyst. Um, gems are minerals that have just been cut or poli and polished, for instance, to wear in jewelry or to decorate something. Okay. So let's change gears a little bit then and move over back away from gemstones to light. Two behaviors which result from what we talked about last time, light bouncing off matter, are which ones? To give you a hint, the two terms are often used interchangeably. They're often used as synonyms for one another. So are we talking about reflection and absorption 
reflection and scattering, iridescence and emittance, refraction and scattering, or refraction and absorbance. Okay. Looks like just about everybody has weighed in. So for this one, uh, yes, the answer is reflection and scattering. Often you talk about reflection and there are, there are different sort of, in terms of how they're defined, they're different processes, but people often use reflection and scattering interchangeably. And let's look at why this is and remember what we actually are referring to in terms of a definition for each of these. So to recap what we did last time, a lot of this is not new material. This is material that we have already been discussing, but putting it in kind of a perspective, or hopefully putting it in kind of a perspective for you. We talked about light as an electromagnetic wave and also acting like a particle. So you already know light can be a wave and light can be a particle, behave as a wave or a particle. At very large scales, it's often more useful to think of light as a wave. It's at the very small scales that we often talk about light as a particle. So last time we were basically saying, now we're going to think about light as waves. And you'll see in the astronomy class, the, the class about color in astronomy, how the wave nature of light is particularly relevant to this. For now though, we know we have waves of light and these waves of light interact with matter. They can interact in one of two ways. The last lecture we talked about part one of these waves which was bouncing off of matter. That includes scattering reflection, diffraction and iridescence. Iridescence next lecture. And then part two, so this is what we're doing today, traveling into matter. So for this, there's absorption, transmission, dispersion, refraction, and diffraction. You'll notice some overlap. Diffraction is a, is a product of both. But that's normal. That is fine. Let's go on then and discuss some of these properties. Again, this is not really new material. We've talked about most of these phenomena. We've talked about, with the exception of iridescence, we've talked about all of the other phenomena throughout the course. And you'll see how in the next slides. So to quickly review part one, there's two ways in which something can bounce, light can bounce off of material. And as you saw in the previous question, those two ways are reflection or scattering. So reflection is familiar to all of us. You think of light traveling in a ray in a straight line. The light hits the surface, bounces and bounces off it, again, in a straight line, but a slightly different angle. Scattering is something different. With reflection, you have an incoming wave reflected off of the surface back toward the direction from which it came. It's a very specific 
unidirectional type of phenomena. The difference between reflection and scattering is that scattering reflects things in all different directions, multiple different ways. So in terms of scattering and reflection, you can think of, as, think of scattering as a type of reflection, but a, a reflection, or the other way around actually, that goes around everything. Let's go back to the most straightforward one first, the most that we're, ones that we're commonly familiar with, and this is specular reflection. The word specular in this case, specular just means like shiny. So things like mirrors and metallic surfaces reflect objects specularly. A shiny, clear, sharp reflection of that object is given. This comes as a result of how the light, which path along which the light's reflected back. And of course there is the law, which is pretty uh, basic. The law is that in a specular reflection, the angle of incidence, the angle that the light hits the material at, is equal to the angle of reflection. That's only in specular reflection. What about scattering? Okay, so this is why they're different. Again, you saw the reflection, one path in, one path out. Scattering, one path in, many paths out. Typically the difference between scattering and your specular reflection is the surface off which the light is reflecting. So scattering happens because of these inconsistencies in the material off which the light bounces. So very corrugated surfaces scatter light in all different directions, whereas a smooth mirrored surface scatters it in one direction. Today we're going to talk a little bit about scattering with respect to the atmosphere, and this gives, a, gives rise to a lot of beautiful natural phenomena that we see, um, well, some every day and some less than every day. So scattering is the reason, really, why the sky is blue. And it's also partially the reason why we have things like rainbows. Okay. So let's get into part two then. So we're going to talk about light traveling into matter and get into some of those associated phenomena that we have um, with the atmospheric scattering, the rainbows, blue sky, red sunset, etc. So. What happens when a light wave encounters matter? Well, we just talked about this. It's one of two things. It can bounce off or it can enter. So if you have a light wave interacting with matter, that light wave can actually permeate the matter, depending on what matter we're talking about. So when a light wave comes upon something of regular matter, what happens is a light wave permeates through the medium. It moves into the object itself. When I say medium, I'm just meaning the material. So if you have a light ray coming to this table, 
the medium it's going through is air. When it hits the table, it moves through the medium, the material that the table is made of. So the medium it's moving through in this case is a table which is made of a specific composition. A couple of actually really interesting things happen when light goes from one medium to another. And you can think of it this way. Uh, in a greenhouse, the light uh, permeates the glass. Think about it as if it were something else, not light. If you were to run into a greenhouse and smack into the wall, that would not be very pleasant. If you were to run into a steel wall, that would be even less pleasant. But you'd have certain effects. One would harm you more than the other. One would change how you react to it more than the other. The same happens with light. Light can permeate things, some things more easily, and has a harder time permeating other things, and as a consequence, slows down, is brought to a collision, sort of slowing down. And we'll see how that happens. So when a light wave travels into a new medium, not just one, but many different things can happen to it. And we're going to discuss four of those. Um, the ones we're going to discuss today are absorption, transmission, dispersion, and refraction. So absorption has to do with the loss of light. It has to do with the light, as the word suggests, getting absorbed or soaked up by the material. If you take away the light and absorb the light, you have, therefore, less light. So this subtracts light from the surface of the medium, and the medium looks darker. This is like subtractive color mixing. Sorry. Basically, you have photons of the light. Certain ones at certain energies are more likely to be absorbed, depending on what the medium is made of. And this color of light, for example, if it absorbs red, then you'll see it, that's everything that's red, everything but what's red. So absorbs red and yellow, then you'll see greeny-blue. So this is subtracting colors from the mix. Transmission is something different. Transmission, you can think of transmission in terms of filters, in terms of stage lights, in terms of gel. It's a specific window that lets light of a certain wavelength through. So transmission has to do with the letting through of light that meets a specific criteria, i.e. that has a certain energy, which means that has a certain wavelength. Dispersion. Dispersion is something, one of the first things we talked about. Going way back to the first lectures when we talked about Newton. Dispersion is the separation of light into its constituent colors. So by something like a prism, white light comes in, hits that medium, and as a result of entering that medium, gets split into its colors. And we'll see why that is. Uh, refraction, you can just think of refraction as bending. It's basically the change in the direction of the wave as it enters the medium. 
So if you have a wave going straight on, entering a medium, the direction would change. Instead of going straight, or let's say due west or east, there's a slight change in the direction of the light, so it'll be going, for instance, northwest. Bending. Let's talk about the bending a little bit more. Uh, why does the bending happen? I mean, it's, it's nice to say, okay, this is white light coming in and it's split into all these colors. Why does it do that? Well, actually, it does that due to a change in speed, in velocity. So when I'm using the word velocity here, I just mean speed. Velocity is a vector quantity of speed, so basically it means it's a speed in a certain direction. So if I'm driving, I'm going 60 kilometers an hour east. That's a velocity. So what happens with light? Didn't we already learn that light has a constant speed? It has a speed of c, right? Yes, it's true. Light has a constant speed. However, there are slight variations in speed on each of those wavelengths. Very slight variations. And each wavelength, basically depending on the energy it has, is traveling at a slightly varied speed that's distinct from every other wavelength. And this particular speed, when it enters the medium, will cause something to be deflected or bent more or less. So it changes by different amounts depending on the wavelength of the light, because each of these have different speeds. And to illustrate that, a common example people give is if you are spinning or you have sort of a, well, that, that's a, no, I will, I will not go into that example. That's a different thing. But Think about if you are walking through a field. It makes it harder sometimes to walk in a straight line if you have very tall, high grasses impeding your progress. You may require some slight change in direction, depending on how fast you're going, and it would really slow you down. Same thing happens with light entering a medium. And here's a good way to actually think about it. If you're driving along straight, you're driving from one medium into another medium. So let's say you're driving on a paved street, and then all of a sudden you start driving on some grass. There is going to be a change. Your car will experience a change when you start to go on that new medium. So car moves down from the pavement, in this case into some sand. If it's going dead straight, it will usually continue to go dead straight. The velocity will be changed a little bit. But if you're going at an angle, think about if you were to hit a curb. If you hit a curb straight on, it, you, you, you will still be oriented straight to the curb. If you're trying to mount a curb and hit it sideways, the car gets deflected into a different angle. So essentially, the same thing happens when you move from one medium to another, from pavement to sand, entering at an angle you get redirected or bent or refracted by another certain angle as you enter the sand. So the same thing happens with light. If it enters, let's say, glass, light what, in air entering glass, going straight, that's straight. If it enters the glass at a certain angle, again, it gets bent by another kind of an angle. 
So that's our that's our refraction. And that's why you see things looking distorted when you have something underwater. Um, typically in your glass, the straw looks as if it's almost two different straws. This is due to the bending of the light as it enters from the air to the water. So that reflection then, normally the light rays would be coming from here. It looks like it's over here because these rays that are still coming from the physical straw are bent as they exit the water, go into the air, and go to your eye. This is why we call this apparent displacement. It appears the straw has moved or has bent in some way. It's not. It's just an illusion of its refraction, given that the light from the straw is exiting the water, moving into the, into the air. So we know, again, that refraction is the amount of bending. And we saw in the prism experiment, typically, that light bends by different amounts. So the reason it does this is because each wavelength, each color, is moving at a slightly different speed. And different speeds will be bent by certain different amounts. If that seems hard to conceive of, think again of that car example. If you're driving very, very, very fast at a certain angle and you're driving between pavement and sand, the amount that you'll get deflected, that your car will jostle back and forth, will change depending on what speed you're going. If you're going really slow, chances are the deflection is going to be less. If you're going really fast, you'll get a, a sort of a real deflection and, and probably get shaken up a bit. Same thing again with light in different medium. In a different medium, the high energy wavelengths like blue, they're traveling really fast and they get deflected more than these lower energy wavelengths like red. So red is the lowest energy, most sluggish thing. It gets bent the least as it changes between medium, media, and blue gets bent the most. And this is why in Newton's prism experiment, there was a worksheet I had given you before to say label the colors. The high energy ones, blue, violets, these are bent the most amount, and the red stays the closest to the original angle that it entered the prism at. Okay? And this is exactly what's happening here. So you have this dispersion by a glass prism. You have white light coming in. And all of this gets a little bit confusing because you're using all these terms to define certain things. So we're using dispersion, we're using refraction. A lot of them actually do refer to similar things. Okay. But we just want to remember that dispersion has to do with the color, colors being produced, different constituents of light. And refraction is the reason those colors are produced. It's the bending of the light. So the violet, the higher energy spectrum, light is bent more because of the speed of the wave entering this medium and leaving this medium. And the red light is bent least. Again, it enters the medium and it leaves the medium. Okay. So we talked about 
some refraction in prisms. And it, it happens basically any time the medium changes. So as I said, it enters and it leaves. So you have multiple refractions happening. Each time light from the air enters the glass, that's one refraction. When the, the, the light leaves the glass, enters the air again, another refraction. And often these multiple refractions can give us some really interesting properties of light. Okay, so we've got air into glass and glass back into air. So we've got two refractions happening when the light enters and when the light leaves this prism. Okay. Uh, this slide just gives you an example of how you might quantify how much things bend. The formula you do not need to memorize or study. I'm just showing you sort of how this relates. So typically, how do we characterize how much something will bend? Is there a different bending amount between going from pavement to sand? Well, yes, there is. And the same thing is true of light in different media. For each media, medium, there is something called a refractive index. Based on the composition of the medium, if you're going into it from air, certain things will bend light more, and certain things will bend light less. And not surprisingly, again, that has to do with the speed at which the light is traveling. I'm not going to get too much into this because I think it could be a little bit confusing, but the refractive index is given by this particular formula. N is your refractive index, C is your speed of light, and mu is the velocity at which that particular light, say if it's blue or red, is traveling. So the index, refractive index then, is the factor, it's like a ratio of speed of, normal speed of light to the speed of light that that particular color has, basically. Uh, it's a ratio that tells you how much light will slow down once it gets into a certain medium. And here's an example. Again, this will not be tested. You do not need to memorize this. But what do you think the easiest substance for light to penetrate is? Well, in our experience, a lot of the time it's air, right? So we have, well, it's actually a vacuum. Vacuum would be the absence of matter. So that happens in space. But we're on this planet and we breathe air. So air is also very easy for light to get through. Air has a standard temperature and pressure has a, has a refractive index of one. As you get more and more dense and differently composed materials, that refractive index starts to go up. So it means that something like glass will slow light down. So water, it's easy. Air, light gets slowed down once it moves into water, gets slowed down once it moves into glass, and slowed down further as it moves into diamond and further into silicon. If you were to go the opposite direction, then it, get, it would get speeded up, the transmission of light. So that's just so you know what refractive index means. And basically, this is determined by another uh, formula. 
<coughs> which is referred to as Snell's Law. And Snell's Law tells you how that light bends based on what medium it's entering. You do not need to know Snell's Law. You will not be asked to calculate anything with Snell's Law. But this is just to give you a simple idea that if we know N, which is the refractive index, so we know this medium in white is, say, air. This medium in gray, let's say, is water. If we know the two media and the angle at which the light is entering the media, crossing that boundary, we can calculate how much it will slow down at what angle it's bent. So again, here's an example. Remember we talked about normals. Normal is just a 90 degree angle to a certain surface. So if we have the normal to the medium, the medium boundary in this case is this vertical line. Therefore, the normal is going to be horizontal to that. So if we have, based on the normal, an angle theta 1 that we enter at, we use Snell's law to say, okay, this is air, this is water, I know N for those, I know the angle that it's entering at, I can calculate the angle it's leaving at. All right, so I think we'll probably, we'll leave there to just have a break, because we're probably about the break time, and I'll continue afterward with absorption. So it's 9.28. So how about we come back at 9.45? Let's resume then with uh, absorption. We talked last time about absorption with respect to an absorb absorbance spectrum. Now, if you remember from your midterm, we talked about a red t-shirt. There is a question on there asking you about which, which uh, particular spectrum given describes the red t-shirt. So if you have an absorbance spectrum, again, it means light is being subtracted from the system. If it absorbs red light, if red light is absorbed, you will not see red. The red light is subtracted. So absorbance is basically the general process of a particle absorbing the energy that comes from a certain um, microscopic level, basically. It's the particle, you can think of it as a particle aspect of light. So when an electron absorbs a photon, it gains energy and jumps up to a higher level. So what you have with this entering medium, a medium will be partial to absorbing certain kinds of wavelengths. So depending on what medium it is, it'll be more likely to absorb different colors, like say red versus blue versus green. Basically, it subtracts whatever it absorbs from the incoming white light. So any wavelengths that you have that weren't absorbed, OK, 
can basically be scattered back away from the medium, out of the medium, and could also continue to pass through the object, continue on in their path. So let's look at an example of an absorbent spectrum. Absorbent spectrum of a red t-shirt is going to look something like this. So the absorbent spectrum is this one here. All of the light, it lets through everything but this particular red. So it absorbs the red, therefore you are not seeing something that's red, you're seeing something that's all the other colors except for red. The reflectance spectrum is the opposite. If it reflects red, the red comes in and it's bounced back along another straight trajectory at a different angle back to your eye, so you see the red. So the red photons are reflected in the case of reflectance, and red photons are absorbed in the case of absorbance. And that's just the simple difference. It's very, very uh, simple to sort of understand in that way. Um, another kind of spectrum is called a sensitivity spectrum. We spent a lot of time earlier on discussing eyes, rods and cones, and the, the sort of three different wavelengths of light that your cones are sensitive to. If you remember, we said they're roughly sensitive to red, green, and blue light. They're a tricolor receptor. So a sensitivity spectrum tells you basically how sensitive to absorbing light at a certain wavelength, some sort of material is. So this tells you how much light at the wavelength is absorbed by each type of medium. In the case of the cones, it will tell you how, what is the peak wavelength which is absorbed by each of those three different receptors. That is the sensitivity spectrum. It's most partial to absorbing red, green, and blue. Basically, the higher the absorption of a particular wavelength, so the more it absorbs something, the higher the peak. We call that the higher the sensitivity. If it absorbs something really well, then it means it's really, really sensitive to it. And let's see an example in terms of eyes. So those are the sensitivity peaks of those three receptors we have in our eyes in our cones. So the red, green, and blue, the, small, the, the long, medium, and short cones, L, M, S cones. And you can see the peaks. This is the absorption peak. So they're most sensitive to light of that color. And in this case, light of this color, and light of this color. That's just saying sensitivity. Okay. Transmission then, let's talk about transmission. It's, it's kind of similar to what we talked about before, but instead of being sensitive to talking about, sensitive to absorbing certain kinds of light, transmission allows light through. Instead of taking it away and subtracting it, it allows light of one specific color or one specific energy through. So essentially we have a general process where we pass portion of the original light through the medium 
and that medium will only let certain wavelengths through, and in this sense it acts as a filter. It chooses certain colors that it will allow through, and this is what's happening in things like stage lighting when you have gels. It'll block all the light if it's a blue gel, except the blue, allowing only the blue through. So these are filters. So in terms of transmission, transmission um, filters will block certain wavelengths and transmit others. And here's an example. Here are the gels that I'm talking about in stage lighting. So in each of these cases, they will allow, say this particular one, which is blue, will allow the blue light through, blocking the other wavelengths. You can also get transmission of specific wavelengths if you engineer lenses in a specific way. Uh, as you can see, this glass has such a composition that it will let only certain colors through. Okay. So a transmission spectrum, same as all of our other spectrums, except this one is just telling us what gets through. So if you're transmitting in the blue, green, or red, it means you're seeing light in blue, green, and red. This is what gets through. This is called, and what you want to notice in each of these different spectra is they all look the same, right? They all look like curves, linear type of curves. Sorry, linear peaked curve, not linear as in a line. But what's the difference? The difference is in the y-axis. So if you get a question in a test and you're asked about, let's say, the color of a material based on its spectrum, first thing you want to look at is this y-axis. What am I actually graphing? If I'm graphing transmittance, that will tell me the color transmitted. That will tell me the color I see. The peak would be the color I see. If, however, this says absorbance, or A, that will tell me that the peak, it will tell me the colors basically I'm not seeing, which colors are absorbed best. So it will be the opposite color that you see to the absorbance. So here's a summary of this. These are each of the five types of spectra that we've talked about. I didn't introduce this at the very start because it's a little bit unnecessarily confusing, but now that we've talked about all of these types of spectra, I think it makes more sense to understand. So again, the only difference between these is the quantity graphed on the y-axis, on the vertical axis. So the intensity spectrum looks at the intensity of the light received, which means color you see. Reflectance, again, looks at the percentage reflectance. So if it's a peak in the red, it reflects red the most, you see red the most. Absorption, however, is the opposite. If the absorption graph has a peak in the red, it means it absorbs the most red light, and you see the opposite suite of colors. Sensitivity is a variation of absorption. Sensitivity will tell you how well a certain material will absorb a specific wavelength of light or a specific color. And transmittance will tell us what percentage of a specific color is allowed to get through the medium. So what, again, what you see.
So this brings us to talking again about colors. We've already heard that dispersion is basically the breakup of a wave of white light into its spectral components or its different colors. And this is due to the dependence of the wave speed in a medium, basically. So again, faster going colors, if you want to think of it that way, are deflected by different amounts. Blue is the most, red is the least. Let's see how this actually works in nature. So we've got dispersion and refraction. Red bends the least, blue bends the most, as we said before the break. And actually, this is why you have phenomena like rainbows. So where do the rainbows actually come from, and why do we see them, and under what circumstances do we see them? There's two reasons the ra that rainbows come about, and those two phenomena are di from dispersion and from refraction. So dispersion being the separation or the breakup of light, refraction being the change in direction of a wave as it enters a different medium. And so the two of these together give us rainbows. What's happening is in a rainbow, we see a rainbow typically in air, but there's a different medium there. There are water vapor molecules most often, or a lot of moisture that acts as that second medium through which light is dispersed and refracted. It's then bounced back to your eye and you see it as a series of different colors at different heights. Let's see exactly how that works. So here's a typical primary rainbow, very lovely uh, example there. And sometimes you'll often see secondary rainbows, if you look a little bit higher than the first one. Anybody notice anything about the colors in, if you can see that, in the primary versus the secondary rainbow? Yeah. Right. So the orders of the color is kind of strange. The orders go from blue to red in this one, and then they're reversed in the secondary rainbow, going from red to blue. No, it's to do with the material itself. It's to do with the medium. So basically, when you're talking about, so when you're talking about sensitivity, the sensitivity has to do with the makeup of the medium. It's the sensitivity of the medium, not your eye. So it's, it's like what the particular physical substance is partial to absorbing. So it's not to do with your eye. And in terms of our own eyes, when you have the red, green, and blue cones, those are chemically composed differently, the red, green, and blues. So it's really the material in each of those different types of cones that give it that sensitivity. It's not a perceptual effect. It's just a physical fact of they're made of different things. Okay, so back with, with rainbows, we have this primary rainbow, we have the secondary rainbow, and they're reversed. First of all, what even allows us to see these things, and why are they reversed? Well, we even see rainbows in the first place because there is a change in medium. So typically, 
When you have water droplets or water vapor, they act as tiny sort of prisms dispersing the light into its different colors and refracting it in a certain order to your eye. And this is a function. How exactly those colors are ordered is a function of viewing geometry. Where you are relative to where the sun's light is coming from and also relative to where the water droplets are positioned. And sometimes rainbows can be a little bit elusive and they're only visible though if you're at oriented at a certain angle. So the sun essentially has to be behind you and it has to be no higher on the, on the horizon than 42 degrees. So if this is 90 degrees straight up, 45 degrees is like halfway and the 42 degrees is slightly less than that. So you notice you never see a rainbow when the sun is at its uh, zenith, at high in the sky. And we'll see why. So as I've said, the angle has to be 42 degrees above the horizon. And this has to do with the refraction of light. And I'm going to show you some diagrams that illustrate a little bit better how this happens. But before that, let's have an overview on rainbows um, with this video. to record covers. Rainbows are everywhere. But you can even remember the colors without thinking twice. Although no one really says indigo, but I guess Roy doesn't really have the same name to it. And anyone who's tried to chase one finds out a rainbow isn't really there. You can't go over it, and you can't get to the end of it. It's become this mythical representation of the unattainable. In Navajo and Norwegian mythology, it's a bridge that only gods can take between heaven and earth. And for Christians and Buddhists, rainbows are a level of peace and forgiveness. And in some cultures, it's a really long, colorful unicorn. Of course, just because a rainbow isn't really there, doesn't mean we can't explain how it works. The better question is, why is a rainbow? And that answer is 42. Let me explain. A rainbow exists because of light, water, and a little bit of physics. Let's start with sunlight. It looks white. Now, to some, that seems like the absence of color. But thanks to Isaac Newton, we know that white light is really the sum of all visible wavelengths, from short to long, and all the colors in between. It makes you wonder, if there are colors in between other colors, then how many colors is a rainbow Anyway, so we've got light, and now we have water. On a rainy or misty day, the sky is filled with tiny droplets. They aren't quite as small as the droplets in clouds, though, which is why we don't have awesome-looking clouds. Well, some of you might be saying, but Joe, I've seen a rainbow in a cloud before. Well, that's not really a rainbow, but we'll talk about that another time. 
Those suspended liquid prisms are surface tension on its smallest scale. And the droplets are pulled into the shape of a sphere. And each one can catch sunlight and become its own part of the rainbow factor. Here's where we add in the physics. Sunlight starts by entering a raindrop from behind you. The light goes from one medium, air, into another, water. And that causes it to bend slightly thanks to a process called refraction. Different wavelengths of light bend at different angles, so this causes the white light to separate. The bent sunlight then reflects off the back of the raindrop and refracts again on the way out. When we measure the angle between the light that went in and the red light that comes out, the answer is 42 degrees. So how many drops does it take to make a rainbow? Well, a lot. Because each color exits at a different angle, one raindrop will send red light into your eye, and another drop will send violet light. The same thing happens with all the colors in between, each coming from their own droplet. And what about the shape? I mean, we call it a rainbow for a reason. It's not a rain line or a rain zigzag. See, you and your eyes are at the apex of a huge half cone, and at the other end is the water that makes the rainbow. This gives a rainbow that curved shape we all know and love. Everything that you see is because that light is coming back right to where you are. No one else is experiencing exactly the same rainbow as you. If everyone's rainbow is unique, does your rainbow look like my rainbow? Well, Michael from Vsauce has a great video about that. So I'll put a link in the description and let him answer that question. Could we ever see a different rainbow? We've evolved to only see a tiny fraction of 1% of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. What about all the rest of it, from x-rays to radio waves? What if we could see a rainbow like the mantis shrimp? Then our rainbow could stretch across the sky. Well, spoiler alert, maybe not. While it's true that we only see a sliver of the spectrum, you can't make a rainbow out of anything that doesn't make it into Earth's atmosphere. Take the sun. It actually emits almost half of its radiation right around the visible range, which is exactly why we evolved to see that range. The rest of the sunlight is mostly infrared, just a tiny bit of UV. If we could see a rainbow made of all of that, it would only be about twice the width of the one we're used to. Unfortunately, if we could see infrared, we'd be blinded by the infrared radiation emitted by all the warm things around us, including the Earth itself. And turning off the sun wouldn't work either. Most of the electromagnetic spectrum is actually filtered out before it reaches Earth's surface. But what about all those radio waves? I mean, they're traveling freely through the atmosphere. Picture all those bands way beyond the red side of our rainbow. Sadly, having radio antennas for eyes would also be a blinding experience because the air is filled with the signals from our Wi-Fi, mobile phones, and, well, radio. I guess we'll have to be happy with the rainbow we have because it's pretty much the best rainbow we can make. The next time you see a rainbow, remember that even though there's no pot of gold at the end, no one else can see exactly the same rainbow that you can. And that sounds like treasure to me. Stay curious, and thanks for watching. So that's a good little overview of rainbow formation. Let's look at it in a little more detail then. So as was said in the video, suspended raindrops are sort of in a tug of war between forces. Um, they are basically pulled into a spherical shape because of friction and tension on the surface of the drop. 
So you've got this spherical kind of a reflector, refractor, and disperser. It's like a spherical little prism. The light is subject to a number of different transformations as it enters and leaves the medium. So remember we have medium one, which is air, and then we have medium two, which is the water. So as we go from air to water, there's a first refraction. This refraction bends the light by a certain amount, hits the back of the raindrop, is reflected, moves down here, and then is basically refracted again. So where it exits the raindrop, where it changes media between water and air once again, it's bent a certain amount. And actually in terms of if we wanted to calculate these angles of bending, we can do this. And we can do this pretty easily by using the formula that I had described earlier called Snell's Law. If we know what kind of media each of the media are, if we know the angle of entrance, and the, we can calculate the angle of exit. So we can calculate all of this, but we're not going to get into actually doing that for this course. So and typically the angle from the light when it enters this spherical reflector raindrop, spherical prism, to the light that exits it is 42 degrees. Here's another illustration of this. And just remember that we're talking about dispersion and refraction here. So we're talking about the bending and the moving around of light because it possesses different energies and moves at different speeds. So blue, which is highest energy and moves fastest, will be emerge at a 40 degree angle, basically, in the raindrop. And the red ray emerges at a 42 degree angle relative to its original direction. A lot of how you see your rainbow and how there's a difference between your primary rainbow, which is the first one, and a secondary rainbow, which is the higher one, has to do with your viewing geometry. Where you are standing, where that cone which is sort of outlined by your visual perception, your field of vision, is and where the sun is relative to you. There are a number of terms we can think of uh, the point. If you think of the sun's rays being behind you, sun's rays are coming and they're passing past you. Something that's parallel to the sun's rays in the direction behind you is called the anti-solar point. It's opposite to the sun, anti-solar. The angles are always consistent. There's always this 42 degree angle to do with the geometry and the bending of light. So what about this opposite order of color? And what about his comment in the video that you need lots of raindrops and each raindrop only reflects one specific color? Isn't it that we're getting this kind of culmination of many spherical raindrops dispersing all the colors and giving us all the colors at once. It's not that, actually. It's actually dependent on height. So you have a, a bunch of raindrops, and basically raindrops at certain heights will give you the reflection and refraction of a specific color. It's the mass effect of all of those raindrops 
falling at certain heights and being redirecting and refracting that light into your eye that gives you the orders of color. So the actual order of the rainbow or the apparent order for a primary rainbow is you have the blue on the bottom and the red on the top. So in that diagram we showed, it's flipped. We're talking about uh, refraction. So remember, you're talking about two different effects here. There are the processes of light that light undergoes as it moves from one medium, air, into another medium, water, at the individual level, which makes the colors be one way. Then there's the process of, think of it like projection, of how you see the rainbow, which is all of the drops together at certain heights reflecting certain colors into your eye. I know that's kind of confusing, um, but the order of the colors of the rainbow exists because there's certain wavelengths being reflected directly into that area of our eyes. And each height level is one, refracts one color. And it's which color it actually refracts is the one that emerges along our line of sight, along where we're looking. So again, here's the actual rainbow. You see the blue on the bottom, the red on the top. Well, this is totally opposite to that. What's going on? Well, it's true, the refraction and dispersion processes in the drop are different than the scattering off the atmosphere that's happening to allow you to see your specific order of colors. And in order to put that in a little bit better perspective, this is what I mean by each raindrop or water droplet at a certain height will be responsible for scattering only one color of that whole rainbow into your eyes. So you get a big collage of height-dependent colors. So the raindrops at the lower heights are the ones that refract the blue light into your eyes and the raindrops at the higher heights are the ones that are refracting the red light into your eyes. The same kind of thing happens when you have a secondary rainbow. The angles are just different and consequently the colors switch. So it, instead of having our 42 degree angle, a secondary rainbow will occur at a 52 and a 55 degree angle to your eyes. And again, because of these height patterns and the scattering off the atmosphere along your geometry, along your line of sight, the color order will appear to switch. No, no, it wouldn't. You wouldn't. That's a good question, though. If you, if you could go up, could you see the rainbow change? No, it would just change relative to your geometry and the geometry of the sun. So given that the sun is so far away from us, you're not going to get it to change like that. And, it, and it's, you know, it doesn't actually exist. It's just there as a function of angle. So you can't get closer to the rainbow. Okay. Um, so here's, uh, here's an illustration again of the primary rainbow and the secondary rainbow. And what's going on is just along your particular line of sight, at the 52 degree angle, the red wavelength is being refracted 
and at the 55 degree angle, the blue wavelength is being refracted. Here's an example of some raindrops over water, sorry, rainbows over water. Uh, the video is only discussing rainbows as a function of storms, but rainbows can be anywhere you have the diffraction and, sorry, the dispersion and the refraction of light due to a difference in mediums. So you'll often see rainbows on the floor from glass. If it's a really sunny day, it's basically the rainbow, instead of the water droplets, the glass is being the second medium, which diffracts and, and refracts the light, and you see your rainbow on the floor or in a crystal or a, or a glass suspended in the air. And this is actually a picture taken by um, the professor of the online version of this course. A lot of these pictures were um, Tatiana Uvarova's pictures. And this is York. This is the, I think this one is the, is the York fountain, the rainbow in the, in the fountain right out there um, one day. Obviously, uh, this is a more kind of spectacular version, but the mist from the waterfall in this particular picture is being that refractive dispersive medium for the rainbow to appear. So you can have it anywhere you've got water droplets or anywhere you've got changes in medium. This brings us to talking a little bit more about the phenomenon of atmospheric scattering. So we've got bouncing off spherical prismatic moisture drops. What about the other particles in the atmosphere? So as you know, the atmosphere is composed of a mixture of different gases. Um, and each of them have specific properties and specific sizes. How do atmospheric particles and atmospheric compositions scatter light in different ways? And what's the result of this? Well, basically the result of this is a number of phenomena that we see every day. So as you know, the atmosphere is a sort of layer of air enveloping the Earth. It goes up to about 60 kilometers, 60, yeah, about 60 kilometers. Um, and it protects us. It does a number of things. It also it protects us from incident solar radiation. But it has different composition at different height levels. And you can think of the atmosphere as a layer of particles enveloping or surrounding the Earth. We have diatomic particles often in the atmosphere. So we have diatomic nitrogen and diatomic oxygen. The size of each, we can actually measure these. And remember when we're talking about visible light, we're talking about 400 approximately to 700 nanometers. These molecules are much, much, much smaller than the wavelength of visible light hundreds to thousands of times smaller. So the molecule size of a nitrogen atom, sorry, nitrogen molecule is 0.2 nanometers. It's like less than one nanometer. And the molecule size of oxygen is about the same. So what is this going to, how is this going to affect our refraction and dispersion of light? Remember, we saw those light waves coming in into a water droplet which had a kind of a large size and being scattered in different ways. 
Well, it turns out that with particles, depending on the size of the particle, it will scatter the light in different ways. So let's see some of that. So if the particles are really, really small, compared to the wavelength of the light that they're scattering, this is a phenomenon called Rayleigh scattering. And this is the reason why our sky is blue and why we see sunsets essentially as red. So particles that constitute the atmosphere are really, really small compared to the wavelength that they're scattering and have different ways of scattering different sizes of wavelengths. So if we have a rainbow of colors coming in, some colors scatter better than others. Which colors would you think would scatter better than others? The smaller ones are the, the smaller wavelengths are the bigger wavelengths. Bigger? Longer? Smaller? Okay, so it's actually the, the smaller ones get scattered. They, they think about the small particles. If you're a smaller thing colliding with something, with something small, then the smaller you are, the easier you get scattered by that particular thing. So particularly blue light and light that has a shorter wavelength is scattered most effectively by smaller particles. Now with this scattering, just remember the term when you're reading through these notes. Remember the term scattering refers to like a deflection. So when we talked about reflection, one angle in, one angle out. When we're talking about scattering, we're talking about one angle in, many angles out. It's being deflected from its original path by a large amount. So if blue light comes in from the sun and is scattered the best, that means it's dispersed in all different directions the best. Let's see what that looks like, actually. So this is Rayleigh scattering. Your blue photons hit particular particles and bounce around. They get jostled around the most. Whereas the red, which are the longer wavelengths, are less affected by hitting these particles and pretty much continue along their original path. So they are scattered less, the blue is scattered around or in many directions more than the red light. And this is called preferential scattering. So things like Rayleigh scattering, because one is scattered better than another, Rayleigh scattering is responsible for preferential scattering or the better scattering, the larger deflection of short wavelength light than long wavelength. Okay, so what this means is Rayleigh scattering scatters blue light the best. What does that mean for us? This is actually why the sky is blue. All of the incident light coming from the sun is con constituted of all of the colors. But the light that gets jostled around the most and thrown out in every direction the most is the blue light. And this is why we see the blue light in every direction essentially fills up the sky. This is what's happening when we see a blue sky. What about things like sunset? 
We don't see blue sunsets. We have reddy orange sunsets. Well, remember the previous diagram with the particles showing the smaller wavelength and the longer ones? The longer ones, the red-oranges, continue almost undisturbed in their path. So when the sun is low on the horizon, the same stuff is happening. The shorter wavelengths, the blue is getting scattered all around the sky, but the red light is continuing pretty much undisturbed in its path right to your eye. And this is why you see this reddy-orange glow in sunset. So it depends on where you are relative to uh, where the sun is as well and how that light is scattered. So sometimes you may have noticed that sunset on the horizon, the sun looks much bigger, looks much redder. Or sometimes if you see the moon at night, if the moon is low on the horizon, it looks much larger and it also has different kinds of colors in it. Why might that be? Think about the atmosphere. So the atmosphere, if you're going straight up, you're just passing through the 60 to 70 kilometer atmosphere that we have on the planet. If you're going at an angle sideways, you actually have to pass through more atmosphere. So what's happening is you have more scattering going on and you have, again, the blue light scattering in all directions, and the one that is scattered the least, which is the red, is coming directly at you. It takes a little time to get used to the concept, but really what's going on is the difference of viewing angle. You're going through more atmosphere, therefore the scattering of the light. What you're seeing along your line of vision is the color that you will eventually see. So here's what's happening. Here's our atmosphere. If the light is coming directly down on you, it's white light consisting of all of the colors. And as we've said, the blue light, shortest wavelength, gets scatters the best. The other wavelengths, the longer ones, pretty much pass through the atmosphere, not nearly as disturbed as the blue ones. So, if you're looking up at the sky, the sun is high on the sky, this red light gets scattered almost down to the ground, so you don't see it. The blue fills up the sky around you, and therefore you see blue light in a daytime sky with the sun at high altitude. Like this. This is kind of coming to sunset time, but what do you notice in this picture? There's a difference, right? Up at the higher altitudes, the sky is blue, and closer to the horizon, the sky is becoming yellowy, orangey, red. Again, this is a function of the sun being located right here along your line of sight. And along that particular line of sight, that is the path that the yellowy, orange, wavelengths of light are traveling along and therefore you see yellowy orange there. Here's another example. This is also at York. Um, a picturesque sunset at York, but this is more reddish in this case. And again, it's that red light 
coming along your line of sight to your eye and the blue being scattered in every direction so you're not seeing it. So we've covered this. Um, it's often red around the horizon because you're going through thicker atmosphere and blue at sort of the extremes because this is where the blue light is scattering to. So you have more scattering of blue light out of your line of sight. Let's see an example of what this looks like. There. So essentially, blue light is being scattered all over the place. Along your line of sight, one particular wavelength is coming to you. In this case, it will be red. And that's your sunset. And you're traveling through, have to see through more atmosphere than if you were to go straight up. Here's a, a red, ready, pinky sunset um, on the pond here at York. And here's an example. This is sort of like the Passy Garden area, the graduate residence. And sometimes you can see we get different colors of sunsets. Sometimes the sunset's more red one day and it's more pink another day. And sunrise and sunsets can be different colors. Why is that? Well, the same stuff's going on, right? The same refraction and dispersion is going on. That's true. So the processes are the same. The difference, though, is the atmospheric composition in the morning versus at night. It's, it's essentially the cleanness or purity of the atmosphere. So what causes a difference between a sunrise color and a sunset color has to do with chemical composition of the atmosphere. And typically, you know that things cool down at night, the temperature lowers, the density is, you can think of it in terms of temperature and energy, the density is less. So at nighttime, when you're in the morning, less particles have been kicked up to scatter off of. As you basically go through the day, the sun rises, it heats the air, the air has a number of different thermal motions, and more particles are circulating, and this allows for different kinds of scattering of light. Okay. So in the morning, you could say that the atmosphere is clearer or cleaner, and it's calmer. It's like ripples on a pond. The atmosphere hasn't been shaken up that much yet by the thermal energy from the sun. Less particles are kicked up to do the scattering, whereas when the sun actually rises and heats up the air during the day, by the time sunset comes around, there are tons of particles that can do all this scattering. Okay, so there's the sunrise, again, at uh, this time near the Assiniboine buildings at York. And um, one other thing, though. So we've talked about sunrise, sunset. Another thing that can scatter light is dust, dust and aerosols. We talked about pollution. You can see in a hazy summer day, that's ozone pollution, but then it's ozone scattering the light. Right? So you see this kind of a smoggy effect. So in terms of being preferential scatterers, anything that's really small compared to the wavelength it's scattering, is Rayleigh scattering. It scatters light preferentially. It scatters the smaller wavelengths. 
There's a different kind of scattering. And this is the last one we're going to talk about. But a number of different things happen. I don't really want to go into the interstellar uh, reddening extinction stuff right now. We'll do that in the astronomy lecture. But fundamentals are you can tell what's between you and something, for instance, a star, by how that light is scattered and in what direction it's shifted. So the last type of scattering we're going to discuss is me scattering. Instead of that preferential scattering that you had with Rayleigh scattering, in me scattering the particle size of the scatterer is really big. Therefore, the wavelengths of the light that it's scattering are small compared to the particle size, and it scatters everything. It basically recombines that light and gives you the white light. Um, the addition of all of these wavelengths to give you white light. And this is why things like clouds and even milk are white. The particles that constitute the clouds and the milk are really big compared to the light that they're scattering. So it takes all of that light and scatters it together and gives you a white color coming back to your eye. This is why milk is white. In terms of milk, the particles it's scattering off of are these really large fat globules. And they're large in size compared to what they're scattering. They're about on par with the wavelengths of light. They're about 100 nanometers. So they scatter all of them and they give you white light. Uh, if you have less fat in your milk, if you have like skim milk, with not as much as those big particles, Skim milk often looks kind of more watery or bluer. It's because those particles, you don't have as many of those large fat particles to scatter the white light consistently. So the scattering is coming off different, um, more watery particles, and you get a bluish tinge. Uh, now with clouds, as we know, clouds are made of these condensed water droplets and ice. And again, based on what we've seen, clouds as well are white as a result of me scattering. The particle sizes are somewhat large compared to the light that they're scattering. And this is why we see them as white. So you often see interesting kind of patterns in clouds. You see areas of really white and areas of dark. Well, that's, again, a function of, basically, your viewing geometry. If you have a cloud that's this wide, you have the sun on one side, obviously the light can only penetrate so deeply into the cloud, so the side away from the sun is going to end up looking darker to you because the light has already been absorbed as it moves through the cloud. All right, so me scattering, we talked about all wavelengths being scattered, no preferential scattering. Everything is scattered back together, and we see white. And I'm going to show you this quick video, which is showing different phenomena in clouds. Bella and Jack are on a mission to bring back the disappearing bees. Want to help? 
Honey Nut Cheerios presents Bella and Jack. Free book available at these stores while supplies last. Learn more about bees at bringbackthebees.ca. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Do you remember how rainbows form? There's a ton of videos out there that explain them. The physics is pretty easy. Light enters tiny water droplets, bends or refracts, bounces, bends again, and different colors end up in your eye. Easy, right? But if you've ever looked up in the sky and seen a bright halo around the sun, or the moon, or a fiery explosion of colors, that's not a rainbow. It's way cooler. In fact, you might even say it's ice cold. In an old video, we talked about the science of snowflakes and how the shape of H2O gives frozen water crystals a six-sided symmetry all the way down to the atomic level. But way up in the atmosphere, where it's cold and dry, instead of forming the snowflakes that you know from ugly Christmas sweaters, ice crystals end up more like this. These crystals can act like tiny sun-bending prisms, and if they end up between you and the sun, like inside a cirrus cloud, they can form those amazing halos. So, how does it happen? Inside that high cloud, there's prisms arranged in all different directions. If we zoom in on a slice like this, the crystals in different positions will be rotated in just the right way so that the light coming out the other side will be bent towards your eye. Different rotations refract light at different angles, but since those angles average about 22 degrees, the halo is brightest right there. And since no light is bent at less than 21.7 degrees, we see a dark hole in the center. When the sun is even lower in the sky, much cooler things can happen. How cool? How cool? Um, I'm trying to think of a pun here, but I seem to be freezing up. Sorry. Instead of prisms, some ice crystals end up like six-sided frisbees. And just like autumn leaves, they tend to fall with their flat sides down because of air resistance. This means that close to the horizon, those crystals are oriented the same way, which creates more concentrated refraction in very specific spots. It can look like there's three suns. And because these fake suns obediently follow their solar master through the low sky, we call them sun dogs. You know how in a rainbow, longer wavelengths are bent slightly less? Well, that happens here too, tinting the inside of a sun dog slightly red and the outside slightly blue. On rare occasions, you can see this, a ring stretching around the entire sky. Instead of refraction, those flat ice crystals are reflecting like mirrors. This stuff can even happen around the moon. These are just a few of the amazing things that can happen when light meets ice. If those conditions are just right, it can look like Bob Ross with nuts and dragons icy paintbrush all over the sky. Between clouds, sunsets, rainbows, and all this icy awesomeness, it can be hard to pick a favorite atmospheric phenomenon. Luckily, you don't have to. Enjoy them all. Keep looking up. Just not directly at the sun. Stay curious. This episode of It's Okay to Be Smart was made possible by... So that, some of the phenomenon in there are ones that we didn't talk about, like the sun dogs. Um, but they're interesting phenomenon. They're all to do with the refraction of light. And again, just to remind you, clouds are white because of me scattering. And here's this area where they look darker in some cases. 
It's just because the sunlight is absorbed, it can't penetrate them. So you've seen the dark area. And again, here are some examples of dark areas in clouds. Again, dark regions are because of the absorption of the sunlight. So they're dark because once you get into a dense cloud, light gets absorbed and can't penetrate it and can't scatter out the other side. Also, sometimes, depending on the color of light that falls on the cloud, that particular color will be scattered back. So sometimes you see orange-looking clouds, right? Because they're close to the horizon, so basically. That's what you're getting. And that's, that's about, well, for, for our purposes, this is an overview of our atmospheric color phenomena. So next time, I will talk about um, interference of light, which talks about iridescence and different things. But for now, enjoy the rainbow. I will see you next Wednesday. Okay, have a good week and weekend.